Welcome to the Like Phil podcast. This is John Faithful Hamer. Today we're going to be talking with a friend of the podcast, the entrepreneur, philosopher, aphorist, and all-around interesting person, Aaron Haspel. Uh, we're going to be talking to Aaron about Tom Wolfe. Uh, as you, many of you probably know, Tom Wolfe, the American author and journalist, uh, recently died at the age of 88. Uh, Tom Wolfe is known for all sorts of uh, novels. He wrote uh, The Painted Word, The Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test, uh, The Right Stuff, which was made into a fantastic movie that I saw when I was a kid um, about the first guys that were the astronauts that went off into space. I also wrote A Man in Full, which I've assigned to a number of classes. It's a fantastic novel about um, somebody finding stoicism in the way that people find Jesus or like religion or something like that. It's amazing. I uh, wrote The Bonfire of the Vanities and so many others. Um, most recently, Back to Blood, fantastic novel. Uh, so t uh, basically, Aaron wrote um, a sh an essay about Tom Wolfe, which I thought was absolutely beautiful. So we're going to be talking about uh, the meaning of Tom Wolfe's life, his legacy, and what his work was. Uh, before we get to that, um, just some sort of housekeeping issues. Uh, we could very much use your support. There's a number of ways that you can do that. You can support us in social media by following us on Twitter. We're on Instagram now. Uh, if you go to Instagram and put in Likeville Podcast, you will find us. You can follow us on Instagram as well as Twitter at, um, at the Likeville Pod. You can join our Facebook group, uh, which is, you can just put in Likeville and it'll take you right there. You can share our podcast. That's very, very helpful with your friends. Share it on social media. It's especially helpful if you leave reviews. On very in various places. If you leave reviews of Like Phil on Facebook, if you review us on iTunes, because that sort of get, gets the algorithms working in our favor and brings the podcast to the attention of other people. Right. This podcast is brought to you also by our Patreon supporters. That is the most um, tangible way that you can support us is to become a Patreon supporter of the podcast even if it's just for a couple of bucks a month it's very very helpful to know that we have that regular revenue stream so that we can budget um, for future guests for various things uh, you can find us there by just going to www.patreon.com slash podcast this episode is also brought to you by our sponsors today's episode is Brought to you by Seb Furtado Photography. Sebastian Furtado is a professional photographer who offers private online photography courses for all levels. Also, if you happen to be in the Montreal level, he in the Montreal area, he also often offers private lessons and group lessons uh, and all sorts of things. Uh, today's episode is also brought to you by Good Mix Foods. Good Mix is a natural, super healthy breakfast paleo mixture of seeds and nuts and all sorts of wonderful things that's made in Vermont, 
lovingly, <laughs> thoughtfully. It's wonderful stuff. I have it for breakfast every single day. Uh, today's episode is also brought to you by Elsa's Bar in Montreal. Uh, if you are in the Montreal area, you probably know about this place already. If you have, if you're going to be in Montreal, definitely check out Elsa's in uh, Plateau Montreal. It's on Roy Street, right on the corner of Dubillon. They have fantastic atmosphere, wonderful food, and just just really great people. Wonderful place. Today's podcast is also brought to you by Café Lali and Galerie des Artistes Galerie d'Art, which is a combination art gallery and café They in St. Henry here in Montreal. St. Henry is sort of the, uh, many people say it's kind of the new hipster neighborhood in Montreal. It's uh, got all sorts of wonderful cafes and art galleries, and it's a very nice place. Uh, this particular combination it's family owned it's a mother and daughter uh, one of them runs the art gallery and the other one runs the cafe and it's just a wonderful place you go in there they their coffee is fantastic uh, the art is amazing so definitely check that out as well all right uh, without further ado i give you aaron haspel on tom wolf <laughs> Welcome to the Likeville Podcast. This is John Faithful Hamer. Today I'm going to be talking with a friend of the podcast, Aaron Haspel, New York entrepreneur, philosopher, aphorist, all-around interesting guy and culture critic, about uh, one of his favorite writers and one of uh, recently has become one of my favorite writers as well, Tom Wolfe, uh, who died recently at the age of 88. So welcome, Aaron. Hi. Hi, John. Hi. Nice to be here. So I, uh, I did all my homework, and I read, um, I read the Tom Wolfe things that I was not familiar with over the last week, just to, to bone up on it. And uh, what a fascinating guy. I mean, I, I think I understand more fully when you said that he'd had a great influence on you. I didn't, that was not immediately apparent to me, but I, I see it now. So, so what do you think the legacy of Tom Wolfe is? The legacy. Well, I think Tom Wolfe is the great critic, okay, of sort of mid-century New York intellectual life. And there are four facts about Tom Wolfe that everybody needs to know. And once you know these things, I think it becomes clear you know, what his position is, uh, you know, vis-a-vis -vis New York intellectual life. And the four facts are these, all right? First, he's Southern, comes from Virginia. Second, he's an aristocrat. He's not just Southern. I mean, he's like a real Southern aristocrat. His father was editor of Virginia Planter magazine, I think mm -hmm. it was. And Which although, is a, a very old publication, I mean, I've read, going back to the 19th century, it's a very old and amazing publication. But anyway, yeah. Right, right. Okay, and many people are familiar with the fact that he did his graduate work at Yale, but not as many people realize that he did his uh, undergrad at Washington and Lee, 
which is where rich Southerners send their sons. Okay, you know, it, it's a finishing school for Skynes of the South. And he went school. there, and he went there uh, after being admitted to Princeton. He turned down <clears throat> Princeton to go there, which tells you a lot as well. Right. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And so this is something that's you know it it. it, it it's a significant part of his background, and you will find that, you know, it informs his writing in many ways. The third important thing to realize about him, and this is not entirely obvious if you just read the novels, but it's more obvious if you read a lot of the essays and the cultural criticism, like The Painted Word, which I suggested you read, is that Tom Wolfe is a conservative. Now, he's not, he's a political conservative, but that's of less importance. What's really important about his conservatism is that he's a cultural conservative. Mm -hmm. And this you see in The Painted Word and From Bauhaus to Our House and many other things. And I'm going to get into that a little bit later as the uh, podcast goes along. And the fourth and final important fact about Tom Wolfe, which a lot of people fail to realize is that he's a jock. Mm-hmm. He was a baseball star. He, yes, he, he, he was. almost made the Giants. I mean, he was, that's, uh, that's exactly yeah. right. He had a major league tryout, and he wanted to be a baseball pitcher, but you know, I, I, I think by his, by his own reckoning, he said he didn't have much of a curveball. And uh, I, I, thought he yeah. said, I thought he said the problem was his fastball. He did, oh, he, oh, was it the fastball? No, it was. He had a good, good curveball, uh, but once you get to a certain level, the the hitters are so great that if you can't get it above 85 miles an hour consistently, they're going to just kill you. It's going to be exactly. one home run after another. Yeah, it was his fastball that he just uh, he didn't have. But, but yeah, I mean, I, I, it didn't occur to me until you just said that, but those are extremely important because there is this uh, persistent thing that you see, in, especially in modern literature, where the artist or the writer is always the the nerd in the corner who didn't get, who got picked last in gym class and has this real resentment against um, the physically strong and able, right? And it's a, a resentment that sort of informs all of their, their work. And so, yeah, he doesn't have that resentment at all, right? Quite the opposite, in fact. And, and there, there are jockish elements in American literature. You know, one thinks of, you know, Hemingway and the boxing and so forth. And, you know, you see certain things like that. But, but for the most part, especially in the late 20th century and certainly in the milieu in which, which Tom Wolfe inhabited for most of his life, all right, there's a profound bias against the jock because... These people were mostly picked on by jocks, okay? <laughs> you know, through 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 yeah. through, through their uh, through their you know through their teenage years. All right, and uh, you know, with with Wolf, it's quite the opposite. And there's a very strong streak in his writing, all right, which valorizes the jock virtues, mm -hmm. in particular physical courage. Uh, one of his famous early essays is called The Last American Hero. Now, I don't know if you read this one or not. I didn't, but, no. Okay. It, it's, it's a central essay to sort of understanding him because it's about stock car racing. Oh, wow. 
And, you know, NASCAR, sort of the origins of NASCAR. This was written, you know, way back in 1964, okay, when Detroit was just getting into stock car racing for the first time. And before that, it was, it, it, it had just been, you know, run around dirt tracks in Northern Carolina, in North Carolina. And uh, Junior Johnson, who's the hero of the piece, was a bootlegger turned stock car racer. <laughs> and yeah, if, from from rural North Carolina, he was a bootlegger. His father was a bootlegger. He grew up bootlegging, and the way he learned to drive was by outrunning the cops. Okay, <laughs> when 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 he did his bootleg stuff. Okay, and, and essentially, what Wolf is saying in this essay. All right, the essay is called "The Last American Hero," and that's not ironic at all. He means this quite literally. Mm -hmm. What he's saying is that you know what what the stock car racers the southern stock car racers and you still see these guys okay you know they're 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 all basically from the same part of the south okay rural north carolina you know western north carolina guys like you know richard petty and kale yarborough and all these people are Je jeff gordon they they all grew up in that place and they all come from there and this is where you know the physical courage comes from all right, just you know, rural southern sort of hillbilly stuff, and this is what Wolf is celebrating in this essay. And you see it later on in his career, most notably in the right stuff, yeah, where he where he's valorizing the astronauts, and the astronauts kind of have the same background and come from the same place. Yeah, it was okay. funny that it, that I actually the first time I saw NASCAR was my uncle lived in Virginia, not little outside of Richmond, actually, where Tom Wolf is from, in a little town called Rocky Mount. And uh, I went to see NASCAR when I was down there, living there for the summer when I was a teenager. And I, I remember just having it explained to me sort of how NASCAR works. And my God, it is such an intensely, almost like ideologically American sport. Like you basically, you all the cars are exactly the same. So it's almost like the, the perfect level playing field, right? Free market right. where the car and they're checked to make sure nobody has any inherent advantage whatsoever. And so they're completely isolating the talent of the driver. And so if That's you win in NASCAR, like when I was a kid, uh, this is less so the case now, but when I was a kid for years and years, uh, if you were driving with the Ferrari team, you won Formula One because they had the best machines by far. And it was almost impossible to beat them, you know. But so it was very much just if you have, you know, the the nukes, basically you win, you know. Whereas with NASCAR, they totally eliminate the role of money and the role of, and they isolate the talent of the individual. It's a pure meritocracy. It's amazing. Very, well, it's it, very American. You could you could call them both meritocracies, but really what NASCAR emphasizes, as you say, is the skill of the driver. And what Formula One and Grand Prix racing, you know, uh, sort of emphasize is kind of it, it, it's the skill of the engineer almost. Ah, OK, that's you know, true. It's, it's, that's true. It's, it's how it's how good a car you can yeah, produce. So the drivers are like the, the jockeys of a great horse, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. OK, so, yeah. So you were saying so the last American hero and that's not meant ironically at all. And it's no, no, right? no, no, not a, not in the least. All right. Because essentially what he loves about these drivers is that they're just completely fearless and you just have to be you know he talks about the first lap of going around uh you know in a nascar race right where you know you've got all of these cars going bumper to bumper at 150 miles an hour insane 
it's absolutely insane okay uh -huh. and you know i mean they go into these curves right okay and they'll look for inches just to get by each other okay just at 150 miles an hour and i mean you know the the cars are so good now that you know people don't die that often because as you say i mean you know they're very heavily regulated and they're all built just so and essentially everyone's driving the same car but you know back when tom wolf was writing about this in 1964 it wasn't that way at all people died all the time yeah i mean this is no joke yeah no i, I was it was really intense hey and, and you know if this guy i want to read the essay now but this guy that he's talking about who was a bootlegger i mean for a long time the reason why the 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 bootleggers and the the mob and you know bonnie and clyde and all those people they were able to get away. Part of it was because if you could cross state lines, they couldn't chase you. But also it was that their cars were just so much faster than the cops. And so they were like the Formula One drivers with the really good. They had uh, engines that could just out outpace all of the police chasing after them, right? Well, yeah. I mean, that's that's kind of, that's kind of what happened, okay? You know, what the, the ideal bootlegger's car, okay, was a car that looked like nothing because you didn't want it to stand out in any way, okay, you know, in appearance, but under the hood, you had just a super <laughs> jacked up thing, yeah. right? Yeah. And, you know, I mean, that's what these cars were like. Yeah. No, and, sorry. And, you know, Wolf, Wolf, actually, Wolf writes about that in the essay. He says, uh, you know, I mean, maybe the cars looked like nothing, but there was one thing you couldn't disguise about these cars, and that was the sound. <laughs> All yeah, right. that roar of the engine, yeah. Exactly. The way these engines sounded, it was just absolutely unmistakable, all right? But, you know, it's very difficult to imagine most 20th, 20th century writers <clears throat> writing about NASCAR, of all things, the way Tom Wolfe writes about NASCAR. Yeah. And Tom Wolfe writes about it in that way because, I mean, you know, he understands it because he was brought up that way because, you know, those people were all around him. I mean, obviously, he didn't hang out with bootleggers himself, but, you know, he had a much closer acquaintance with hillbilly culture than anybody who hung around in New York. How do you square this with him being an aristocrat? Hmm. Well... <clears throat> I don't think the fact that he's an aristocrat had too much to do with this. It's just familiarity with it by virtue of his being this of uh, of his being southern. All right, I'm not saying that you know all qualities of Tom Wolfe come to the fore in everything he does. Okay, what I'm saying is you know if you're a jock and you're from the South, whether you're an aristocrat or not, you're likely to be a lot more sympathetic to an understanding of something like NASCAR and something like stock cars. Than you know, if you're a Jew and you grew up nerdy in New York. <laughs> no, I, the reason I asked is that I I know I know a number of people who grew up in the United States in a very sort of upper class milieu. Like uh, you know, one person that springs to mind immediately, a friend of mine, he grew up in Boston, and I was very surprised when I found out that uh, he's from Boston because he has absolutely none of the Boston accent. Right. Right. And it's because he grew up in this like upper class and they went to the opera and they went to the museum and they did, they went, he went to private schools and he had grown up in Boston. He had never once been to a Red Sox game. He had never been to a Patriots game. He had never mm -hmm. been, because that was beneath his, his people, right? And so when, and I also, another, another example, somebody springs to mind as well, another friend of mine, she's from um, Austin, Texas. 
And I was also surprised when she told me she was Austin because she has absolutely no Southern accent at all. Meanwhile, her older brother, they both were born and raised in exactly the same place in Texas. Her older brother has a very strong Texas uh, draw accent, right? right? So, and she also was raised in a very kind of aristocratic privilege. She did horseback riding and cello lessons and, you know, the opera and the museum. And she did not participate in any way. Her parents were very proud of their ignorance of Texas culture. Right? So when you told me that Tom Wolfe is an aristocrat from Richmond, Virginia, uh, it does not seem immediately apparent to me that he would know about NASCAR at all. And it isn't. And this brings us to a very important aspect of Tom Wolfe's outlook on life and his, and, and, and his career in general. Okay. Tom Wolfe, and this is one of the major white motifs of his career, spent his time mocking people, intellectuals in particular, for not going out in the world and looking at things around them. Mm-hmm. And being this proud is, of that ignorance. Exactly. Exactly. This is what he did. All right. This is why when he got out of Yale with his PhD in American studies and, you know, he had offers to be an academic and teach as an academic and so forth. This is why instead of taking any of those jobs or even taking a job in a fancy newspaper, he took a job at, I, I think, the, the local Springfield, Massachusetts newspaper. I forget what it was, okay, Springfield Journal or Courier, Courier Journal or something Mm -hmm. like that, okay? And he actually worked there for, you know, a couple years doing local shoe leather reporting, you know, chasing fires and stuff Mm -hmm. like that, okay? And he was always this way. He always wanted to go out and look at things, and he would mock people for instead of going out and looking at things, contemplating their navels and <laughs> writing things out of their own heads. Mm-hmm. All right. This is what all this is what he was always opposed to. And this is why he got into NASCAR. And this is also why he got into things like, you know, Ken Kesey and the electric Kool-Aid acid test. Yeah. What, but he also, I, I'm not sure if this is true, but he claims, you know what? I actually, I kind of believe him. He claims that he never did acid. That he actually, and he only smoked weed once in his life. So he was running around with these people, fascinated by what they were doing, but not, he wasn't participating. He was never participating. He was never participating. The reason I emphasize these four points about Tom Wolfe is that if you think about it, these put him in as strong opposition to New York intellectual culture as it's possible to be, okay? I mean, just think how wrong you are from the point of view of the New York Literary, New York Literary Society, okay, if you're Southern. Southern is just completely wrong because, you know, it's like racism and slavery and the wrong side of the Civil War and all that jazz, mm-hmm. okay? Aristocracy is completely wrong, okay, because, you know, all of the uh, all of the all of the intellectuals are you know like middle class driver Jews, okay, uh-huh. like you know Philip Roth or somebody like that. So that's completely wrong, okay. Jock, of course, is completely wrong for the reasons we mentioned. All uh-huh. right, he's not the guy on your side; he's the guy who beat you up, okay. <laughs> right, and and then finally, conservative in every regard, okay, is so wrong for reasons that don't even need saying. Yeah. All right. So essentially what you've got is you've got somebody whose 
ideologically opposed, who's culturally opposed, who's geographically opposed, who's physically opposed, okay, who's opposed in every possible way, okay, to the milieu in which he spent most of his adult life. Now, what do you get from that? What you get from that is the ideal observer. Yeah. You get the guy who's ideally outside. All right. Because, you know, I mean, it's not just not taking acid in the electric Kool-Aid acid test and going on the bus with all the freaks, you know, wearing his suit. It's standing up in his white suit in the middle of the room in Leonard Bernstein's apartment in Radical Chic. Mm-hmm. Just standing there with his notepad taking notes. <laughs> you know, it sounds completely preposterous when you first think about it. And you, you imagine, well, this would have changed the way these people behave so much. They would become so self-conscious. But then you you read what he's writing and you realize these people are so unbelievably narcissistic that they would have got over that very quickly and just, you know, behaved normally. <laughs> Well, you know, in, in fairness to, you know, I, I am I'm as keen as the next person to mock Bernstein and his party guests. But in fairness to Bernstein and his party guests, almost everybody is that way. Yes. Yeah. All right. And in fact, Tom Wolfe had an essay about it called The Big League Complex. And essentially what he says in The Big League Complex is, in order to get people to tell you their deepest, darkest, most intimate secrets, all right, there's a great trick for doing that, all right? And the great trick is you ask. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's that easy, yeah. It it really is that easy, all right? Because anybody who has, if if you act interested enough in some information that people have, okay, no matter how compromising it is for them, no matter, you know, how much it might hurt them to actually give up that information, they will give it up to you just for the sheer pleasure of feeling important for that moment. Yeah, well, I remember, I remember when uh, the the whole debate was happening during uh, George W. Bush's presidency over you know, Cheney saying we need to waterboard people and we need to torture them and things like that. And uh, there were a number of people came forward who actually, unlike Cheney, who just, this is some weird sort of masturbatory fantasy for him. There were people who like actually had participated in like interrogations and, and torture and stuff like that, who came forward and said, uh, actually, you guys are completely wrong. Uh, if you want to get people to talk, all you have to do is... Uh, just talk to them for long enough. Just like get them in a room, isolate them and be, you know, the only person that they talk to. They're like the worst possible punishment you can give to people in prison is solitary confinement. People are intensely social. And if you're just, if you just hang out with them and talk to them, they will eventually tell you everything. You you don't, you don't need to torture them. In fact, if you torture them, well, then it's like the Spanish Inquisition. At, at a certain point, they will just tell you whatever they think you want to hear to make it stop. And the information is, is unreliable. So, yeah, I mean, that would completely fit with Tom Wolfe's theory about how you get people to spill their, their secrets. Oh, oh, sure. It, it, it's funny. He was, he was often accused of making, making up people's thoughts. Because when you read his essays, a lot of his essays consist of interior monologues by the uh, by by the by the subject of the essay. You know, there's a uh, 
there's an interior monologue that begins uh, Radical Chic, where Leonard Bernstein is talking about some, you know, horrible recurring nightmare he has, okay, with, you know, a Negro standing by the piano with a guitar or something saying, Egregio Maestro, Egregio Maestro, <laughs> something like that. Uh-huh. And, you know, and, and, and people accuse Tom Wolfe of making this stuff up. He said, listen, I don't have to make anything up. I couldn't make something up like that, okay? You know, I just asked Leonard Bernstein and he told me, okay? I mean, you know. <laughs> This yeah, is, this no, it's, is what happens. No, it's absolutely. It's absolutely, I mean, that's one of Tom Wolfe's very, I would say, startling, and a lot of people would find goes against modern literature in many, <clears throat> many different ways. One of his claims is that uh, great literature is eighty percent content and twenty percent talent. Right. So you just have to find the really great content. You know, right. And, and he said, you know, when you start off as a writer, you you think it's all talent because that's all you have in the beginning is you, you have talent. But actually, the, the more you get into it, the more you realize that really great uh, literature, it's, it's because the writer had a great story to tell. Yeah. Usually, usually a story that they, that they found in, in the world, not in their head. Right? That's right. That's right. All right. Uh, you know, Tom Wolfe's cardinal sort of, uh, you know, uh, cardinal belief about writing is that, you know, it's what's outside is infinitely more interesting than what's inside. Mm-hmm. Okay? He is the apostle of the outside. It's all about the outside for him. It's all about reporting. It's all about, you know, running around, you know, opening your eyes and looking at what's going on around you. Okay. Essentially, Tom Wolf couldn't believe his own good luck. Because in his view, all he's doing is picking up $100 bills that other people are just leaving on the street. Yeah. There's all this wonderful content around all the time and nobody's paying attention. Exactly. All of this wonderful subject matter everywhere, anywhere you look, okay? And, you know, the country that Tom Wolf characterizes, America, he characterized it as, uh, well, he had various characterizations for it. But one of my favorites is he called it. Hog stomping Baroque. Okay. (laughs) I mean, it's just, it's just, it's just amazing. All right. What you can find around you and all of these people. Okay. You know, all of these famous writers, these, you know, sort of arid literatures, instead of looking at this stuff, would try to write just novel after novel after novel out of their own heads. Mm -hmm. And he thought this was just the most boring exercise in the world. I mean, this is why I, I think he's a great writer, but I, I ultimately I tire of, of writers like Philip Roth because, you know, you, you read one of his novels and you've read them all in a sense. I mean, they're all sort of like he clearly has a, a phenomenal mind and he has a, a very interesting inner life. And he said, but that's by the end of most of his novels, I, all, the only person I've met is Philip Roth. Right, I haven't met. Whereas, like with Tom Wolfe, you're meeting all of these fascinating, strange creatures that are so clearly not him. And I, one thing I've noticed consistently over the years is that the the bad reviews of Tom Wolfe. This is one thing they get wrong again and again. Like, for instance, I read this one terrible review of I Am Charlotte Simmons, which I thought is absolutely brilliant. You know, as somebody mm-hmm. who teaches students this age. He gets it right. Oh my God. Like right down to the lingo, to absolutely everything. He gets it so right. And uh, one reviewer said, well, these are basically 
the lurid fantasies of an old man. And I thought, what? Like, right. you know, did you actually read the novel? Like, this right. is not fantasy. He, he's describing something that he finds pretty much horrible and disgusting. <laughs> you know, and like, he, he's not, it's not at all, I don't sense desire in his description no, of no, no, sexuality no, at all, right? No, no. And so that's one of not. those points where the reviewer sort of tells you more about themselves than, uh, than Tom Wolfe. You know? <laughs> right, right. And the, the interesting thing about Tom Wolfe's novels is that with the possible exception of the reporter character, John Smith, I think his name is, uh -huh. of all things, in, 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 in Back to Blood. And it's funny that he should give him such a deliberately anonymous name as John Smith, because uh -huh. you know, he's kind of the Tom Wolfe stand in there. But with the exception of that one character, Tom Wolfe does not appear in any of his books. And as you point out, nobody appears in Philip Roth novels but Philip Roth. <laughs> yeah. And, well, nobody appears, and nobody appears in Saul Bellow novels, but Saul Bellow, yep, pretty much. Exactly, exactly. I mean, well, the, the big difference, I would say, just to qualify that, in, in Back to Blood, the John Smith character, I agree that it, of anything I've read by him, that is the character that is most close to Tom Wolfe, with a very, <clears throat> very important difference. In most of modern literature, and even in um, Emile Zola, who he says that he has a great deal of respect for, a major trope from James Joyce to the present day in modern literature is that the character that most resembles you is the most sympathetic character. And you see things from their perspective and they're, they're kind of the noble character. And so there may be a, a very harsh and cynical look at everybody else. And so it seems like this sort of hyper realism and very, but that right. one character that is most like the author is presented very sympathetically. And I it's think your it's, no, it's your novel, so you get to be the hero. Exactly. Right? <laughs> but the real difference is that John Smith is, is not presented in a very favorable light. He's presented as somebody who's uh, intensely status obsessed. He's presented as somebody who lies constantly and uses people while, right. while at the same time uh, <clears throat> claiming to be sort of standing up for truth all the time and thinking truth is really important. And, you know, and all these things, I mean, he, he commits all of the sins that, that he supposedly is judging the world for, right? So even the character that's most like Wolf doesn't escape that harsh Klieglite, you know? It's, it's, right. uh, it's right. fascinating. He, he, he shines it on everybody. Now, you know, in fairness to other no, novelists, it's not like, you know, every character is some version of Roth or every character is some version of Bellow. But if it's not Bellow or Roth, it's somebody they know. Yeah, it's, their their wife. Wife. it's their like wife. It's their wife, their ex-partner, yeah, whatever. Yeah. Or their best friends or, you yeah. know, their childhood or their college buddies or whatever, okay? It's people like that. It's clear that what these guys don't do is go out and seek outside of their own natural, outside of their own natural world. Yeah. It's All like, right? I love it. Tom Wolfe once wrote, and I can't remember which essay it was. He said, Emerson once said that everybody has a great autobiography in them, but only one. <laughs> so, so you can exactly. like, you can tell your story and it, and it might be very great, but you can only do it once. If you just exactly. if you do that all the time, it gets really tired quickly. 
It, it does, and that's why even somebody who's as clever and interesting and well-read and broad as Roth, okay, as you say, I mean, you know, it wears on you after a while. Yeah. And, you know, most of the modern novelists are much less interesting internally than Roth, and as a consequence, they write even less interesting books. Yeah. No, it is uh, very fast. I mean, one thing that I was trying to sort of characterize to somebody, I was talking to them yesterday about uh, this interview and about Tom Wolfe, and it seems Tom Wolfe is in many ways, if you could describe him as a, as a perfect Nietzschean philosopher, at least in, in regards to his attitudes towards truth, because, I mean, Nietzsche's famous line about truth, and his, it's one of the central claims he makes, is he says, basically, Socrates was wrong, uh, the Enlightenment was wrong, and he says the major claim from Socrates to, to the 19th century when he's writing is that the major obstacle on the road to truth is ignorance or stupidity or lack of education or things like that. Nietzsche says, right. no, bullshit, that's not true at all. He says the major obstacle on the road to truth is an unwillingness to question things that you care about. So everybody is good at being philosophical about uh, something that they think is bullshit. Everybody's good at being very critical at uh, other people. You know, it's like what uh, Joseph Campbell wants to find mythology as other people's religion, right? So <clears throat> e everybody's right. good at uh, being critical of, but what Tom Wolfe seems to do, and this is not always pleasant, I got to say, um, is he just has that kind of critical stare of, of a, you know, of an, an somebody who's just recently broken up with somebody and they're seeing them in the worst possible light and describing all of their faults in exquisite detail with, like, examples. He just seems to have that cynical perspective towards everybody. It's, it's funny you should say that because I went to a book signing once and I geared myself up. I'm finally going to meet the great man and I, I take my book in and I... Uh, I have my I have my question all prepared in, inside my head, but of course, you know, when I when I see him, I can't come out with the question. I just mutter something about, you know, uh, well, it, it seems like you have a very satirical eye in Bonfire of the Vanities or something like that. It, it, it's just, you know, he he completely disarms me, and uh, he he just looks at me and he says, uh, you know, he he says in a very kindly way, no, 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 it's not satire. I like these people. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. I'm not trying to show them in a, in a bad light or anything like that. I'm just trying to show them the way they are. Yeah. He, this well, is just how people are. <laughs> well, I, I, I also want to make one comment about, you know, ignorance and stupidity being the chief obstacles to truth. Okay. If that were the case, then... What we would expect to observe, okay, is people who are neither ignorant nor stupid getting things right for the most part. And if the 20th century has shown us anything, okay, yeah. it's exactly the opposite. All right? Yeah. That, it, that in general, all right, the cleverer you are and the more you know, okay, the more possible it is for you to go very, very badly astray. Mm-hmm. Okay, and there's a reason for that. And the reason is, 
All right. What intelligence promotes is not pursuit of truth or anything like that, because intelligent people have the same psychological weaknesses that the rest of us do, the same vanity, the same search for status, all of these things that Wolf documents so well. All right. What intelligent people have is higher variance. Okay. They have higher ability to rationalize this, higher ability to justify this. And the more your abilities in this regard, the further off the rails you can go. Mm-hmm. All right. This is what you observe. So in that sense, you know, Nietzsche was absolutely right. And Socrates was wrong. Although in fairness to Socrates, he didn't get to see intellectuals, you know, implementing horrific social systems on a mass scale. And he didn't get to observe the results of that. And if he had, he probably would have changed his mind about ignorance and stupidity. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, he he did live through the um, the reign of the thirty tyrants, which was in many ways a bunch of very very arrogant, brilliant, um, aristocratic young men who thought that they could run the city better than everybody else, and they mm-hmm. overran the democracy and either killed or exiled one third of the citizens of Athens. And so I I don't know. I think maybe maybe Socrates did have some familiarity with. Uh, with that kind of that phenomenon of people who uh, who imagine that they yeah they know yeah better. he had he had some yeah. he had some okay but you know I mean the 20th century has just you know driven that lesson all right you know he, it's really hammered in the bung in that regard just over and over and over again okay and you know it's 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 almost impossible having observed a hundred years of this to believe that, you know, ignorance and stupidity are the chief obstacles to truth. I mean, you just can't believe. Yeah. Would would you say that to some extent, I was thinking about this last night, that reading Tom Wolfe, I, I often feel when I'm reading him that it's, it's a guilty pleasure that I'm, I'm basically that a lot of the pleasure you get from reading Tom Wolfe is the, the pleasure of contempt the pleasure of feeling, um, feeling like you're you're participating in making fun of people. I mean, I I used to know this guy. I mean, he, he lives in Vancouver now, but absolutely hilarious guy. But he was just uh, <laughs> he was this very very kind of like as he would describe himself uh, on his Facebook profile. This is actually how he describes himself. He says, "I'm a bitchy queen," right? But and. He, going going out with this guy to an outside terrace in Montreal, like sort of sitting at the corner of uh, at the, like Vol de Nuit at the corner of like Prince Arthur and Saint Laurent during the summertime, would be just hilarious because everybody who was walking by, he would just crack jokes at their expense, like and he'd be, like, oh my God, sister, you oh you shouldn't have wore that, and like and he would just he would come up with stories for absolutely everybody based on the surface of things on what they were wearing and how they were walking and how they were interacting with other people. And whoever was sitting at his table, it was just absolutely hilarious. You would be in stitches listening to this guy go. But then right. you sort of think about it in retrospect and you're like, that's a very guilty pleasure. Like I'm just sitting here enjoying listening to a smart ass make fun of everybody. Right. And that's Tom Wolf reading his novels is very similar to sitting around and drinking with uh, this guy whose name shall remain <laughs> uh, sitting around with him uh, and sort of people watching. Mm-hmm. I mean, what do you think about that? That's I 
can see how you might get that impression if you focused on the novels. I think if you combine the novels and the journalism, you would get a somewhat more accurate impression of what's going on, which is this. When I say Tom Wolfe is a cultural conservative, I mean he's a very particular kind of cultural conservative. He's sort of what, a, he's sort of what, Talib might, uh, what Nassim Talib might call a localist when it comes to culture. Because he saves his most withering contempt for mainstream intellectual culture. This is what From Bauhaus to Our House and the painted word are all about. I remember I gave you the painted word. Mm -hmm. yeah. Did you read it this week? I did, yeah. Uh, it's okay. savage. It's oh, absolutely savage. Oh, it is. Damn. Okay. But, but the reason it's savage, okay, is he's talking about sacrificing art for status. This is really what it's all about. He's talking about the particular art world. He's talking about a few hundred people who, you know, want to come to New York and make it as artists. And in order to make it as an artist, you don't do art at all, okay? You know, you don't draw, you don't sculpt, you don't do any of these things. What you do is theory, okay? Theory takes precedence over practice. Okay, and this is what modern art is all about for Tom Wolfe, and this is also what modern architecture is all about for Tom Wolfe. I was just looking at Bauhaus this morning, and you look at Bauhaus, and you look at the first paragraph in Bauhaus, and he says, uh, every child goes to school in a building that looks like a duplicating machine replacement parts wholesale distribution warehouse. Not even the... <laughs> Not even the school commissioners who commissioned it and approved the plans can figure out how it happened. The main thing is to try to avoid having to explain it to the parents. All right? <laughs> so, 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 you know, this is not a withering contempt for people in general, okay? This is a withering contempt for a certain elite that has managed to foist its own absurd preferences on the rest of us. All right. From Tom, Tom, Tom Wolf, Tom Wolf is a defender of the rest of us. This is what he's about. All right. He thinks real culture is out there, but it's out there in pockets. All right. And he thinks the mainstream culture is not real culture. It is in fact the enemy of real culture. Yeah. All right. So he's always taking the outsider perspective, just as he takes the outsider perspective standing in the middle of the of Leonard Bernstein's living room in his in his white suit. So he takes the outsider perspective with regard to culture. And he is a celebrator of some of these minority cultures. If you read his early essays like the Pump House Gang and From Mauve Gloves to Mad Men and especially the Candy Colored uh, Tangerine Flake Streamline Baby. I've already discussed NASCAR culture, mm -hmm. but essentially he devotes various essays to all of these local cultures. Okay. There's like, you know, the club kids culture in London, and he has an essay about that. And there's surfer culture, and he has an essay about that. And of course, there's classic car, you know, rebuilding culture. And I he has love an essay that one. That. I love that yeah. essay. <laughs> Exactly. Okay. All of these different things. All right. But, you know, if you read these essays, do you find, you know, contempt for humanity? No, quite the opposite. All right. What you find is outsized admiration. Mm -hmm. That's true. Okay. It, it, it's just that Wolf is contemptuous of the people whom we are taught we shouldn't have contempt for. And 
He valorizes and celebrates the people that we are taught to have contempt for. He reverses things, and it's easy because he does reverse things to make it all look like contempt. But in my view, it's not that at all. Yeah. Well, why do you think, two, two questions in particular, I, I read some of the reviews of The Painted Word, uh, and I was, I was amazed that <clears throat> at the, the depth of ignorance in some of those reviews. And these were from people who are main sort of art critics for Time Magazine, for all these different like that. And they're saying things in their reviews, which anybody with just a, a basic knowledge of 20th century U.S. culture knows is just wrong. Like, for instance, one, one I read, this was in the, I think it was in what, the Time Magazine uh, review of the book. But uh, the person said, you know, this is absolutely ridiculous that his claim that somehow the artists are just following, uh, you know, the, uh, what is it called? Like, uh, Berg world or something or Berg culture. I can't remember the word, but you know, Clement Greenberg and at Al Green, and, Greenberg and Steinberg. And he says, this is right. completely absurd. He said, Every, <laughs> everybody knows that the art came first and that the theorists came afterwards and, and sort of made sense of the art and found ways to sort of explain it and explicate it to the world. And that's, everybody knows that's true. I thought, no. that is completely not true. Like, Clement it's, Greenberg, I, like, was put out his theory of modern art in the 30s, like the early right. 30s, and right. the artists were going to Greenberg and showing them his stuff and saying, does this look, like, good? <laughs> does this look like uh, like modern art? And he'd be like, well, maybe you could do this, maybe you could do that. Like, it actually, that's, and I'm not, you know, I'm not, like, a an art guy, particularly. I'm not an expert in, in art, but I know that, and... Most people know that, I think, who have a, a sense of sort of the history of the 20th century. But And these are people who are supposed to be the arbiters of culture writing, having like plum posts at, you know, these at these newspapers and magazines with massive, massive distributions. And they're so ignorant. And they're well, showing be- that in their responses to his book. Well, it's not that they're ignorant, exactly. Okay, I think they know as well as anybody else that, uh, you know, Greenberg uh, Greenberg was around in the 30s and that theory didn't see, did, did in fact precede practice. But the, uh, but, but the painted word thesis is very threatening to the modern art world. And if you are a member of the modern art world, do your best to try to dismantle the painted word thesis. But, uh, but I mean, of course it's correct. Even leaving the Bergs aside, we can go back to Duchamp and these ready-mades, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, wh- what what is what is that but frozen theory, right? <laughs> yeah, I guess. Okay, you know when you when you when you sign a urinal and you exhibit it at an art gallery in the Armory, as Duchamp did in 1913, you know, are you making art or are you making theory jokes? Of course, you're making theory jokes. Yeah, yeah, which is which is kind of kind of sad. I mean, but what the second sort of question about that is: Why do you think Norman Mailer and you know, all these novelists sort of came out of the retirement home to viciously attack Tom Wolfe after he wrote *A Man in Full*? Uh well, Mailer, Mailer in particular had something in for Tom Wolfe. Uh, Wolfe wrote an essay about. God, I forget what the hell it was called. I wish I could look it up now. It's like the three dwarves, all right? The three Norman stooges. Mailer. 
Was it the Three Stooges? The Three Stooges, that, yeah. Where is that was, what it was? Like, and, that, but that essay was written who, in response ma- to them. It Mailer, was, it Mailer, was in response Mailer, to Mailer, Mailer, uh, Mailer Irving, Updike, and Mailer, Updike and Irving? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Well, Mailer, Mailer, I remember, wrote a nasty review of Bonfire of the Vanities. Yeah. Okay. And uh, so, you know, Wolf had it in for Mailer, and then Wolf wrote this thing called The Three Stooges or My Three Stooges or whatever the hell it was, okay? You know, talking about how, how arid and silly, you know, all of their books were and how they never looked at anything, you know, that, uh, delivering his usual brief against, uh, you know, New York intellectual culture. And then Mailer, of course, fired back with a nasty review of Back to Blood and then Mailer died, and then Wolf died, and then, you know, that was kind of the end of the feud. But, yeah, I mean, I think they had it in for each other for, for, for quite a while. Mm. Well, a lot of people felt like he was, I guess, stepping on their turf, right? With, uh, but- well, that, that was true in general as soon as he began to write novels, okay? Because mid-century American culture was all about writing the great American novel, right? You know, that mm-hmm. was, that was, that was everybody's ambition. The novel was just, you know, the, uh, the, 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 the sum of intellectual culture, okay, was to write a novel. So what everybody wanted to do was, uh, you know, sort of outdo Moby Dick or outdo Huck Finn or outdo whatever you thought the great American novel was. And this was a cliche from, I don't know, the late 1940s through, really 1970 and maybe even later than that so when wolf came around in the 1980s and he said well look you guys are all doing it wrong and your novels really aren't very good and you're leaving these hundred dollar bills on the sidewalk uh naturally people took offense and when bonfire came out in 1987 the knives were out so of course it got the bad reviews from people who were defending their turf that you know you would expect yeah. Have you ever seen the movie Stealing Beauty? No, I've never heard oh, of it. Oh, it's uh, Stealing Beauty. It's, um, oh, what's his name? It's the same guy who did The Dreamers, <clears throat> and he did all, he's a famous Italian director. But anyway, there's this uh, scene, and I, I remember it so clearly when the movie came out, and it's uh, Liv Tyler's uh, in the movie. She's, uh, she's in it. Anyway, so it's all set in Tuscany on the estate of this famous sculptor this world famous sculptor and i saw the movie with uh with a a big group of friends we were about like 12 of us in the movie theater and quite a few of the people around me were in art school at the time they were doing art degrees and there's this one scene in the movie where the sculptor says to Liv tyler's uh, because he's she basically is posing posing nude for him and he's sculpting sculpting her and she says uh She's looking at how it's coming out, and she says, "Oh, so I, wait, I, wait, wait! You, you get some nude Liv Tyler in this movie? Uh, you get, yeah, a little bit. I'm, you I'm get, sold. Uh, yeah, you get like you get one boob, basically. Okay, but, okay. but uh, so, so she's like sort of posing, and he's sculpting, and she says something like, uh, "Oh, I like the way it's turning out." And the sculptor says, "Well, you know, the artist only ever really paints himself." And I, I thought it was such a kind of a disturbing comment and i noticed that the people around me who were in art school were all smiling and nodding like they thought this was a very clever comment right and it seems to me that so much of what tom wolf is about in literature and in his 
his criticism of art, his criticism of literature, a lot of things, is to say, no, that's not true. <laughs> that's not true. Maybe you're doing that. Maybe right. you're, you're only ever <laughs> painting yourself. But I, I actually want to go out in the world and paint some other people. I don't want to spend all my time painting myself. As I say, the outside is where you find the hundred dollar bills lying on the sidewalk. Okay, you know, if you never leave your apartment, if you never leave your own head, you never find these things. Yeah, you've made a very uh, surprising claim. I, I think it's, uh, but the more I think about it, I actually agree with it. You said that uh, that Tom Wolfe in A Man in Full, which he spent what like eleven years writing that novel. I mean, it's just, something it's, like yeah, that. Yeah. Um, that you said in A Man in Full, he makes the case for Stoicism better than Seneca or any of the sort of Greek and Roman writers that, that we have that extol the virtues of Stoicism. Mm -hmm. So how do, you, how do you justify that claim? Well, I justify it by comparing, well, well, first I compare their effects on myself, all right? You know, when I read A Man in Full, I find the fact that there are characters who actually embody things naturally more uh, more convincing. Okay, if you see how stoicism acts on somebody, as opposed to hearing about how stoicism might act on somebody, or you know, being lectured on the virtues of stoicism, you're much more likely to be persuaded. All right. I find it much more convincing to see Stoicism act on Charlie Croker, I believe is the main character mm -hmm. of Man in Full. Okay. Them, yeah. I find it, exactly. I find it much more convincing to see to see Stoicism in action. And that's what a man in full actually shows you is Stoicism in action. What you never get from Seneca, what you never get from Epictetus is Stoicism in action. And this is why I think a man in full is convincing. All right. Also, because I don't think Tom Wolfe's philosophical grasp of Stoicism is inferior to that of Seneca or inferior to that of Epictetus. Yeah. So yeah. I think if you combine adequate philosophical depth with actual illustration in terms of how it acts on a particular character, that's naturally going to be more convincing. Yeah. Besides, Seneca and Epictetus are kind of drags, you know? <laughs> Well, I, I, you know, I, I mean, don't, don't you always, when you, when you read those guys, don't you always feel like you're always being hectored? Ah, uh, to some extent. Yeah. Don't, to they, some don't extent. they, don't they really have the touch of the school marm about them? They do. They do. I mean, Seneca, not, not always, but Epictetus always. Yeah, exactly. Uh, there's a couple of times where, where Seneca says, you know, where he talks about how, like, you should sometimes just like let loose and, and have fun and it's okay to. Uh, to get stupid with your friends sometimes and get drunk and like he he sometimes sort of he'll say these things he said well uh, but but he always does have the kind of moralists rejoinder which is like well you know it's good for your health right they're so they're so yeah they're so dour and finger wagging all right yeah well <laughs> one thing that I found a lot of my sort of uh, philosophy philosophy prof friends they really didn't like a man in full, and they said, well, you know, he doesn't understand Stoicism very well. And I, I mm -hmm. thought it was funny that Martha Nussbaum, who said, you know, wrote a, probably one of the definitive books on Hellenistic philosophy, where she deals with uh, the Stoics extensively. She actually defended Tom Wolfe, and she said, uh, no, you guys are all wrong. He got it right, <laughs> because basically Tom Wolfe uh, treats Stoicism as a religious movement. 
And she said, you may think of it as something that's neat and tidy, that's a philosophy, whatever that means, uh, as this like sort of dry uh, intellectual exercise, a bunch of thought experiments. And she said, but this was Stoicism and Epicureanism in, the, in their heyday, they were religious movements. They had evangelists who went around and preached in the in the public squares, and they this changed people's lives. And it of was course, like, I mean, it was like you know, the Billy Graham shit, you know, like that, so that, he gets that's right. That right. That's right. The, the modern versions of Epictetus, okay, or uh, or Epicurus or Seneca would be TV preachers. Yep. Or self sure. or self help gurus. Yeah, exactly. You know, like they, uh, exactly. They were. You know, not... they'd be, they'd be like Tony. They'd be like Tony Robbins or something. Exactly. That that is much closer. They would not be like your t- typical uh, philosophy prof. Like like for instance, when I teach on on Epictetus or on Seneca, the question I always ask is, uh, does this does this seem like it would work if you used this in your everyday life? Like, would this actually work? And mm-hmm. if if the answer is if it if it doesn't seem like it would work and it doesn't seem like it works for anybody else, well, then I think you can safely just ignore that, you know, that claim. Right? So, but, uh, but what do you think ultimately Tom, what made Tom Wolf tick? I mean, like on the inside, cause I, or, you know, cause it's, it's hard to tell. He seems to have an ax to grind with almost, you know, with a lot of people. Uh, but, do you think there's anybody, you know, what was his positive program, if he has one? He wanted to be famous. <laughs> so it's he just did. it's just straightforward, like that's. He did. He, he did. He wanted to be famous. People asked him once, uh, more than once, I'm sure, but uh, at least he answered once when he was asked why he wore the white suits. Okay, he he made reference to uh, Mark Hellinger. Mark Hellinger was a famous Broadway and later movie producer. He was produced The Naked City, among other things. You know, he's very, very famous in his day, back in the 30s. And, 30s. and uh, he said Hellinger used to wear white suits. And the reason Hellinger wore white suits is that when he was walking walking down Broadway, people could look up and they'd say, here comes Hellinger. <laughs> so he was uh, basically branding himself. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's it. Very effectively. Yeah, he was Brad. So that's. So I guess that's his his legacy. Now you he you say he had about three novels or something like. He claimed that he had a number of books still in him when he when he died. Yeah, right? so. I, he he said he said he had five or six mapped out. Uh, I'm not sure if they were uh, fiction or nonfiction or what kind of books they were. Or, could have been bluffing for yeah. all I know. Well, when I when I read uh, Back to Blood for the first time, I remember talking to you about it, and you said, "Yeah, it's good, but uh, it's sort of it's it's minor wolf. It's not that you say he had thirty five years in his prime, which is phenomenal. It's amazing. Uh, but can you sort of explain to me why you think? What are the threads that are not that just don't come together in Back to Blood? Like, why why do you say that it's it's good but it's not wolf at his best because well, i because i really really liked it and I, I, I and i couldn't see the missing threads that you were referring to i could think of one thing in particular i haven't looked at back to blood for a while but one thing i remember is there's a long description it's like two or three pages of a 
of the father of one of the minor characters who's a professor. Oh, yes, yes, the Haitian professor. The Haitian professor. Yeah, who's like, who's okay. incredibly, he, it, which is, he's got his job basically because they want to have, uh, they want to teach Creole and they want to have African-American studies. But in fact, this Haitian professor is intensely contemptuous of African-American youth culture and doesn't want his da daughter to have anything to, and his son to have anything to do with. Preci precisely. Yeah. And, and he goes into this in detail and there may be two or three pages about it and the pages themselves are brilliant and they win the character very precisely and you know all about this guy and then you never see him again hmm. he disappears for the remainder of the book well you, you see him a couple of times i mean he, no you don't he walks no, in don't. he walks in on camacho and his daughter like almost about to kiss and he's like, he has some... That's, that's before the description, not after. Really? I thought that was... Uh, no, no, it's before. Oh. no, it's before. No, it's before, okay? After the description, he never appears again in the book. Okay. And it's like, you know, obviously here's a character that he wanted to do something with. Or, yeah, I mean, I could be wrong. I don't think so. But if he does appear, it's just very, very minor. So here's a guy to whom, we've de to whom he's de devoted all kinds of time, and yet it doesn't pay you off in any respect. That's what I mean by, you know, dropping the thread a little. Okay. Okay. So that's and, and I think this is what happens when you, when you write long and complicated novels in your 80s, even when you are complicated. <laughs> that you just you run out of steam here and there? Like you, uh, you, 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 you lose certain things. You forget certain things. Look, I mean, I'm only in my 50s, and certain words already begin to elude me, right? You know, I mean, I'm not knocking Wolf. It's tough to write, you know, long, complicated, well-reported, six or seven hundred pages book, six or seven hundred page books, and there's a lot to like about Back to Blood. I'm just saying it's not as tight as his previous books. That's all. Yeah, no, that that makes sense. I mean, I've, the only thing I I wasn't crazy about in Back to Blood was the ending he had a very sort of neil stevenson like ending right like neil stevenson i i know you don't like him very much but i i really like neil stevenson's stuff they call it um hard science fiction because he has very long and accurate descriptions of technology and things like that <laughs> they, they call thought, it they call it hard science fiction because the books are so hard to finish <laughs> well he's got a massive readership so they can't be that hard i mean he's uh it can't be that hard if he's selling that many books and I know a lot of people who are not normally big readers who have read uh, thousand page novels by him. Right. So I find like I've heard that criticism. and I always thought it's really odd because it's sort of like what happened before the Harry Potter books came out. You know, everybody said kids these days have no attention span. They're all idiots. You need to like make everything into sound bites. And then along comes, uh, you know, this, this writer and she puts out these books that are really, really long and they're selling like crazy and kids are reading them. And it, it a whole kind of generation of education theorists had like uh, a whole lot of like pie in their face on that score, right? So, but Neil Stevenson, the, the problem, even people who love Neil Stevenson will concede that his books go on and on and on and they're very, very good. And then like the ending is always this abrupt and rushed thing. Like it almost seems like he just... He was like working to a deadline and somebody said, okay, you've got like one night to finish this thing. This is ridiculous. It's too long. And so there's this rushed, speedy end. 
which is not doesn't seem very satisfying or or and that's how I felt the end to Back to Blood was where the end to other books by Tom Wolfe are perfect I mean they're just like they're like I mean A Man in Full is probably the quintessential example it has the perfect cowboy western ending where you see them riding off into the sunset and mm -hmm. it's just perfect cue to credits I mean just mm -hmm. the perfect perfect ending right Whereas yeah, uh, I, you feel like with, with Back in Blood, like the, instead it's like it just drops off a cliff out of the blue. <laughs> no, I agree. Yeah. And uh, uh, it's funny, A Man in Full is often criticized uh, on the grounds of its ending. Like Wolf was supposed to have, I don't know, had a stroke or something and, you know, uh, had trouble finishing the book or something like that. But, you know, the ending seems fine to me. Oh, it's perfect. I, I thought it was yeah. very, very good. It was, no, no, I, I thought it was, a, it was, like I say, it's a Western ending. And it just, you've, it has the, just the nice kind of fading off into the distance, into the sunset. And, you know, very, very good. So what do you think, if anything, has Tom Wolf had any effect on on kind of literary culture in the States or not? I guess basically he's been good in spite of it. Has he had any effect like, on do you see culture? any? Do you see any writers that seem to have kind of learned things from Tom Wolfe and are implementing that right, in their own writing? Because like I was trying to imagine people that have been influenced by him and I one person I thought of was uh, Tom Perota. I don't know if you've read any of his novels. He wrote, like, Election. He wrote um, The Leftovers, which is that kind of comical novel about that the, um, the rapture described, you know, in the Bible actually happens. Uh -huh. uh, but, it, but unfortunately, the rapture <laughs> happens, and the people that are taken away, it's totally random. <laughs> like, like, it's not Christians. Like, you know, murderers, and it's completely random, and nobody knows how the selection process happened. And so the people that are left behind are just sort of trying to figure out, you know, what's going on. But one of the things in Tom Perota that is uh, very interesting is he also liked... Tom Wolf. Well, that's, that seems theologically sound to me, right? How can we know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, but, but Tom Perota liked Tom Wolf, and I often think when I'm reading Tom Perota that he must have learned a lot of these tricks from Tom Wolf because he goes and does extensive uh, anthropological research before he writes his novels. He mm -hmm. interviews lots and lots of people. He has a lot of like details, and he also has that same thing that you find in Tom Wolf, where the jock characters in Tom Perota novels are all, are always like actually like really nice people <laughs> and they're not they're not monsters they're not uh, and the the sort of the nerdy guy in the corner is actually f like a seething cauldron of resentment and is you know not always like necessarily a very nice person at all but uh, I mean aside from that I can't really think of any other writers that seem to have learned from Tom Wolfe I mean can, what <clears throat> I would cite Richard Price. Really? Oh, yeah, I think so. I think Clockers is in many ways a very... I don't know if you've read it. It's no, I haven't. Book. The, the okay. one that they made the movie out of? Uh, yeah, they made the movie out of that. And uh, Price does quite a bit of movie and TV writing himself in addition to writing novels. Uh, I think he wrote several of the, uh, several of the episodes for The Wire... 
and he writes for some other television shows as well. But uh, Wolf, in fact, cites Price as one of his favorite novels when he's asked or was asked. And, uh, you know, I think Price is just in his turn very influenced by Wolf. For Clockers, what he did is he rode around in the back of a cop car for months and months so he could write about, you know, the uh, right write about selling crack in new york and uh he's got details in the book that are very sort of wolfy in detail things that you couldn't possibly know unless you went out there and actually did some reporting yeah like very very early on in clockers it's one of the first scenes you see the uh the clockers the the, the crack dealers just sitting waiting for their customers out in the middle of the uh out in the middle of the playground and, you know, of course, they have all kinds of idle time because when you're a drug dealer, that's pretty much what you have is idle time. And what do they do with themselves? They look at catalogs. Like, like, hammock, like hammock or schlemmer, okay, and things like that, all right? They, they flip through catalogs and look at the nifty gadgets. And, of course, they couldn't possibly buy anything. It's not like these people have credit cards or bank accounts or anything like that. They just look at the gadgets, and this is what they do, and this is how they occupy their time. And you just know when you read something like that that this is not something that Richard Price made up. This is something that Richard Price reported by going out there and talking with these guys and observing them and seeing what they actually do. All right. It's a very wolfy in detail. And Tom Wolfe's own books are full of things like that. And you can you say also The like Wire, that, probably, right? The show The Wire is also kind of the way it looks at uh, sort of newsroom culture, the education system, the political system, the the drug economy in Baltimore. That's uh, that also you could perhaps say is kind of a very Wolfian approach to Baltimore. Like it, it's the the creator of the show has firsthand knowledge. I mean, he was actually a reporter and has firsthand knowledge of all of those things. And so you get that well, that granular detail, right? The wire inadvertently makes one of Wolf's points. I think. Which is what? Which is that your own experience is likely to be duller and you're likely to be less interesting about it than other people's experience. The worst season of the five seasons of The Wire is the last season, which takes place in the newsroom. And presumably that's the milieu that David Simon knows the most about, or at least started off knowing the most about. Yet it's the worst season precisely because it's personal and because he's clearly grinding axes and because some of the characters there are stand-ins, no doubt, for people he knew in real life and wanted to get back at in one way or another, okay? And it's just absolutely obvious, all right, whereas the first four seasons do not suffer from that problem. So in a way, he's making one of Wolf's fundamental yeah. Well, it's go yeah. look outside. Look outside. Don't look inside. That's interesting. That's an interesting point. I mean, there's um, one of the criticisms of the painted word in a, a number of different uh, reviews of it, and this is, I think, a, a criticism that some people have leveled at Tom Wolfe in general is that it's like a little kid going into an X-rated movie theater and watching like a porno film. Right? They they can sort of maybe you know, follow what's happening 
kind of, but they don't really understand the significance of what's happening. Like they don't have any kind of, they can't, um, that they're, they're so from the outside that their descriptions, that a little, a five-year-old's description of what's happening in a, a porno movie would be woefully incomplete, right? Because they just don't have kind of the, any, any understanding or sympathy with, the what's happening there right so that's an incredibly harsh cruel criticism uh, well yes and no i i could imagine a five-year-old description of a porno movie being rather valuable (laughs) okay if only by virtue of its outside status in many ways the outside view is more insightful than the inside view really i don't know i mean like a friend of mine told me he uh when he was growing up in puerto rico he once uh, his dad, who was like this super, super macho guy, macho character, he was a cop. And one time uh, he like, where they were having like some sort of big barbecue or something like on a campground or something like that with a bunch of people. And he mm-hmm. went off into the woods to, to pee and he was like, you know, five years old, something like that. And he came upon his dad, uh, like sort of having sex with one of his friends, this guy. He had him bent over up against a tree. And his dad told him, uh, his dad told him, oh, I was just helping him pick something up. <laughs> and he completely believed him until, right. until much later on when he like put that together and was like, oh, that's what was actually happening there. But well, sure, I mean, obviously... He didn't have, the, his... he didn't have the, the understanding at all to know uh, what was actually going on there. And the criticism sure. is that of Tom Wolfe that I've heard from many people is that he's so, he's got this ironic distance. He's so outside and kind of looking at, and, and so kind of rejecting, like you, you've celebrated him for this, that it's, it's, all, it's all about the surface of things, that, uh, that he's actually missing a lot of the action because it's important to know how people understand what they're doing, even if they're deluded. Right? That it's, sure. you can't just uh, be looking uh, from the outside. And the other, the other criticism that I've, I've heard from a number of people, we read, we read a couple of his books for a reading group, and this was something that came up very often, people's criticisms of him. They said, you know, here's a guy who clearly comes from a, a very upper-class Southern background, and mm-hmm. I know having spent some time in the South and not, this is not just special to white Southern culture in the South. This is, you see this with a lot of people who come from a kind of very upper-class aristocracy. They are obsessed with appearances. And to, like, way, way more than normal people. Like, way more than normal people. And it's, it's something that you immediately notice about them when you hang out with somebody like that. They're very, Bye. very obsessed with... Bye. Bye. By, by normal people, I assume your readers mean themselves, right? Oh, I mean people who come from, from working class, from middle class, from, uh, from other... There's people... Okay, I guess what I'm trying to say is that there's a natural tendency for all humans to assume that everybody else is like us. And so the one criticism that I've heard leveled at Tom Wolfe uh, very often is that, okay, we understand that you are completely obsessed with appearances and status and stuff like that but it's a mistake to assume that everybody is as obsessed with status and appearances as you are that that's not to say that you know other people are not interested in those things they are interested in those things but you know it's 
it becomes a kind of a circular argument. And very, you know, we've talked about this many times in the past. That the big problem with arguments of people like Freud or people like Marx or people is that they're so circular. They basically say everybody's motivated by X, Y, Z, and if you acknowledge that, then you are enlightened. Um, if you don't acknowledge it, it's because you're in denial or you have false consciousness. So Tom Wolfe, the criticism of him that I've heard from many people is that he's basically saying everybody is completely status-obsessed all the time, and if you recognize that, you're smart and you're one of the enlightened. And if you don't, well, you're just in denial or you have false consciousness. And that's like a very airtight, you know, we didn't need Karl Popper to tell us that that's like... That's an unfalsifiable thesis. Well, to begin with, you're attributing to him a thesis that he never articulates. He doesn't say that everybody's obsessed with status all the time. What he does say is that status details are very important and people take a lot of pains with status and that these pains are often not generally recognized. And he doesn't illustrate this in some arid theoretical way, but in a very practical way. And I'm gonna give you a couple of details from Radical Sheik and Mau Mau and the Flat Catchers to illustrate what he's talking about. Because the details that he uses to illustrate this thesis are often very funny. Now, one of them is in Radical Sheik. In Radical Sheik, of course, as everyone knows, has read the book, uh, Leonard Bernstein invites the field marshal, as he styles himself, of the Black Panthers, Donald Cox, to come speak in his living room and talk Black Revolution to his very rich and hoity-toity friends. And Bernstein uh, gives a party for this, to uh, for, for, for the Black Panthers. Now, what Wolf writes about and it's very funny, is he writes about the servant problem. And the servant problem is this. If you're going to invite Field Marshal Cox to speak in your living room on behalf of the Black Panthers, you can't have black servants. <laughs> That's a real bad look. Mm -hmm. Okay, you can't have black servants. So what you got to do is you got to get your servants from somewhere else. So what Wolf talks about is the run on Central American and South American Hispa and Mexican Hispanic servants in general. Okay, right before the party. All right, just to make sure that you know there are no black servants anywhere in evidence, and anybody who wants to give this sort of party, you can't have black servants anymore. And nobody <laughs> in, that, in, 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 that, in that slice of society can, can have black servants any longer. And, you know, he talks about the run on, 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 on uh, Central and South American servants in the employment agency. And this is very funny. Now, you know, this is an illustration of obsession with status details, and you can look at this illustration and you can enjoy this illustration without committing yourself to some academic thesis that people are interested in status and nothing else. That's the first one. Okay. The second one is from the other essay in the book called Mau Mau and the Flat Catchers. And in this essay, Wolf is talking about the Samoans and the gigantic Samoans who go down to the welfare office and essentially, you know, try to get money out of the welfare organizations. Okay. And what they do is they call out the flat catcher, the career bureaucrat, and Wolf talks about him wearing hush puppies and so forth. And Samoans, Samoans, Samoans are huge to begin with. 
All right. We know this because we've seen Samoans in the NFL. They're absolutely enormous. All right. So you've got these enormous guys. And Wolf is talking about how when they're upset with what the flat catcher is telling them, they start banging on the floor with their tiki canes. They've got these elaborately carved tiki canes, and that's part of their shtick. Okay. They walk around with these things, these canes, right? And Wolf talks about them all banging their canes. All right. And then he says, yeah, but there's one guy, he doesn't bang his cane on the floor, okay? He puts it between the toes of his sandals, okay, and bangs it that way. Because he doesn't want to scuff his cane. Oh, my God. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> okay? Now, you know, this is the sort of thing that only Wolf would notice, all right? And, you know, it very much goes from high to low, all right? In high, you've got the status anxiety of just no black servants. Okay, and low, you've got the status of anxiety of don't scuff the tiki cane. And there's so much of this stuff going on in all of Wolf's books all over the place that eventually you come to the conclusion that, yeah, you know, status does matter. And maybe it's not everything and maybe it's not the only thing, but, you know, it's a hell of a lot. Mm -hmm. That's all. That, okay, that, that makes sense. I mean, he's in, in that sense, he's basically uh, a very good ethologist, right? I mean, like that's... Uh... You know, I think that was one of the fields that I really wanted to go into when I was a kid. I, I didn't end up going into it. But the ethologist is basically just the branch of, of biology that deals with the study of animal behavior, right? And, mm -hmm. and in order to, to be a really good ethologist, you have to spend a lot of time just watching animals, you know, in a blind or something like that and just watching it and trying to figure out what they're actually doing, <laughs> like what are they actually doing, and and why, right? Right. And you have, and you come up with now the the advantage that we have if you're studying uh, Homo sapiens sapien as opposed to like a bird is that you can go and actually talk to them and say not only can you observe what they're doing from a distance, you can also go up to them later on and say well. Why do you think you were doing that? Or what were you doing? Right? And they can tell you and you can decide whether or not you believe them. And, you know, can make, so you can use that to, to kind of augment your, your judgment about what's going on. But you, you basically are, are watching it, right? Now, this, this sort of goes into something that he says about language. And I was wondering if you could just tell our listeners a little bit about, because he made some very strong claims criticizing Darwin and Chomsky and others about... Uh, the nature of language. Uh, you're talking about his last book, The Kingdom of Speech? Yes, exactly. Can you sort of just, I, I, I just read that this week. On, that was part of my homework. Uh, so <laughs> uh, can you sort of just describe what his claims are in there? They're very, very fascinating. Uh, kingdom of Speech. Well, essentially, it's a variation of a time-honored theme with, all right, which is that you have the theoretical guys who stay in their living rooms and never go out and look at anything or do anything. And then you have the practical guys who actually get out there and look at things and do things. And he's entirely on the side of the practical guys and entirely against the theoretical guys. So in linguistics, Chomsky becomes the great theoretical villain, right? Because Chomsky, from the comfort of his office at uh, MIT, devises this whole theory of linguistics that says, essentially, we have inborn 
structures of grammar and everybody has these things and all languages are the same in this way and he makes elaborate hypotheses about uh certain constructs that all languages must have and this goes on and on and chomsky dominates the field and he takes over the field and all linguistics is chomsky based for essentially like you know 15 or 20 years all right and then this guy comes along what the hell is his name i forget the name of the guy who who actually goes down to brazil Okay, but yeah, some some linguist decides he's going to go and do some field work. So he goes down to Brazil and he learns the language of this primitive tribe. And this primitive tribe turns out not to have a whole bunch of structures that Chomsky says are integral to all forms of language and essentially blows blows uh, blows Chomsky out of the water. He, he finds a black swan. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Exactly. Okay, so this whole business of just, you know, grammar being innate and all languages having the same structure, I mean, that's nonsense because, you know, these people are clearly human beings and they clearly have a language and this language clearly does not have these structures that Chomsky says all languages must have. So there you go. And in a way, this is a very Wolfian tale. You see this over and over again. It's, a, it's kind of a variation on the theme in The Painted Word or the theme in Bauhaus or, you know, his whole theme of writing novels based on what you observe as opposed to based on, you know, what you've spun inside your head. Yeah, well, I can't remember who it was, but uh, David Boxenhorn posted, uh, our mutual friend of, of ours, uh, mm -hmm. David Boxenhorn posted a quotation from somebody the other day, and it was, uh, I just, I, I thought, because I was reading Wolf at the time, and I thought, wow, this is exactly what Wolf is arguing against. But it said something like, uh, oh, it was from Wittgenstein, that's it. And he said, like, whatever I don't have words to describe, uh, basically, like, it doesn't exist. Like, basically, the world, like, uh, the extent of my vocabulary is the extent of my knowledge of the world, something like that, right? And I, I thought, well, that's, you know, that's exactly uh, the opposite, because Wolf is saying, as I read him, he's saying, no, there's a real world out there, like with a lot of stuff going on out there, and we, we try and find language to describe the world out there, and we use language as a tool to try and sort of get a handle on what's going on out there. I mean, that's mm -hmm. what language at its best, that's what it's doing. But the real world is always much bigger and more complicated and, than our language. Like our language is, is, right, is trying to describe uh, the real world, whereas there is this kind of sense that you have in Neoplatonism uh, in Christianity, the sort of like that, that line you see at the beginning of the Gospel of John, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was mm -hmm. with God. And, the, and this idea that, uh, you know, the, the Word has this magical power to conjure reality before, before it. And as I read Tom Wolfe, he seems to be saying that uh, this is an idea that only an, an intellectual who stays doesn't get out much could possibly believe. Yeah, right. and the, that's the, that's complete bullshit. That there's right, actually right. It, that your it, people's it, understanding of the world often vastly exceeds their linguistic ability to describe it. In the beginning was not the word. The word came along much, much <laughs> yeah. later. 
Yeah. All right. Yeah. But that's, I mean, that's very central to postmodernism. That's very central to a lot of these ideas that language, I mean, you see this in Foucault again and again, that language has this, this kind of magical power to, to make, things, make things happen in the world. And of course, that's true to some extent. I mean, you can see this definitely, the most obvious example would be law, right? I mean, you pass a law and those words, the way they're phrased and the way they're, you can have real effects in the world for sure. But with, if you take Foucault's view or people like him, that's how you get sort of the, the silliest parts of political correctness. And of, it's this idea that if we can change language, we can change culture. That we don't have to actually do anything in the real world. We can just, if we can get people to describe each other by the right words, uh, the utopia shall ensue, right? That's, it's a very childish view of the, of the world. You know, it, uh, mm-hmm. but, and mm-hmm. he seems to be very much uh, going against that and saying that, well, no, actually language is, uh, is a tool and we don't necessarily, it, it never is adequate, fully adequate to the task of making sense of the world. Well, yeah, I mean, he's saying that uh, the world is not going to conform to your rather banal and stilted and limited ideas of it, and that uh, there are more things under heaven and earth than are dreamt of in your philosophy for it. <laughs> you had, I was wondering if just we would, uh, I wanted to finish with this because it's, it's absolutely beautiful. Uh, mm-hmm. After Tom Wolfe died, you wrote this, and, and you know, to our listeners who know Aaron Haspel, you know he, he's not prone to gushing <laughs> much at all. But uh, but you actually, after Tom Wolfe died, you wrote a, a very very, uh, I thought, very sweet and very thoughtful uh, post about him, and mm-hmm. he, you included in that post a sort of a long quotation from from one of his essays where, which you said sort of lays, makes manifest what his philosophy was, you might say. Mm-hmm. Do you have that handy? Can you sort of just uh, read that to our listeners and then maybe just explicate uh, what you uh, meant by that? You, you, you called him the apostle of the surface or something like that. Yes, Tom Wolfe is a surface philosopher. Right. So let me see if I can. Let me see if I can. Yeah, they're at, the timelines are searchable now. They finally did that. <laughs> so if you just put wolf, you'll get it. Sort of. Sort of. Let's see. If you can find it here. Okay, you want me to read this whole thing? Yes, please do. We should, we should finish, right. with, finish with that. It's wonderful. <clears throat> okay. Tom Wolf died on Monday. He probably spent Sunday writing or reporting as he had done steadily for 60 years. After his last book, The Kingdom of Speech, was published two years ago when Wolf was 85, he noted in interviews that he had another five or six planned. It's a shame that he didn't get round to them because Wolf, though somewhat diminished, remained a joy to read until the end. He had about 35 years at the top of his game, from his first book of journalism, The Candy-Colored Tangerine Flake Streamline Baby, in 1965, to his second novel, A Man in Full, 1998 a more persuasive brief for Stoicism than Seneca ever managed. It became fashionable to sneer at It was bad enough that he was rich and famous, but then he jumped himself up and began writing novels, infringing on literary turf. 
On top of that, he wrote manifestos laughing at the Bellatrists for their mopey navel-gazing. It all got to be too much to take. An oh-so-literary novelist friend of mine once repeated to me the canard that the Bonfire of the Vanities is mere journalism. In fact, as I informed him, it is prophecy. The race-hustling Reverend Bacon appears before anyone knew who Al Sharpton was, and the search for the great white defendant, the D.A. Abe Weiss, is known to his office as Ahab, continues earnestly to this day. For the reader new to Wolf, if any such remain, I suggest the following sequence. Radical chic, the right stuff, bigly complex from Candy Colored, the Mid-Atlantic Man from the Pump House Gang, the Intelligent Co-Ed's Guide to America and the Me Decade and the Third Great Awakening from Moth Gloves and Mad Men, Clutter and Bond, the Bonfire of the Vanities, the Painted Word, then Sample as you see fit. Wolf, like his hero Balzac, was the great apostle of surface. I will conclude with a passage of surface philosophy, it happens to be from Bonfire, that will make Wolf's vast influence on me up. Quote, The Barrero Indians, a primitive tribe who live along the Vermelo River in the Amazon, Brazil, believe that there is no such thing as a private city. The Barreros regard the mind as an open cavity, like a cave or a tunnel or an arcade, if you will, in which the entire village dwells in the jungle grove. In 1969, Jose M. R. Delgado, the eminent Spanish brain physiologist, pronounced the Barreros correct. For nearly three millennia, Western philosophy philosophers had viewed the self as something unique, something encased inside each person's skull, so to speak. This inner self had to deal with and learn from the outside world, of course, and it might prove incompetent in doing so. Nevertheless, at the core of oneself, there was presumed to be something irreducible and inviolate. Not so, said Delgado. Quote, each person is a transitory composite of materials borrowed from the environment, unquote. The important word was transitory, and he was talking not about years, but about hours. He cited experiments in which healthy college students lying on beds in well-lit but soundproof chambers, wearing gloves to reduce the sense of touch and translucent goggles to block out specific sights, began to hallucinate within Without the entire village, the whole jungle occupying the cavity, they had no minds left. He cited no investigations of the opposite he did not discuss what happens when oneself, or what one takes to be oneself, is not a mere cavity open to the outside world, but has suddenly become an amusement park to which everybody, todo el mundo, tout le monde, comes scampering, skipping, and screaming, nerves a tingle, loins a flame, ready for anything, all you've got, laughs, tears, moans, giddy thrills, gasps, horrors, whatever, the gorier the merrier, which is to say, he told us nothing of the mind of a person at the center of a scandal in the last quarter of the 20th century. Wow. <laughs> that, you when, you, when you finally sort of finish that book of essays you've been talking about writing for years now, that has to go into it. That, that is one of your most moving essays. That was amazing. 
Eric, thank, thank you. you so much for coming on the podcast to talk about Tom Wolfe. And uh, just for our listeners, just to give you a preview, we're going to be having Aaron Haspel on the podcast yet again um, <laughs> in the next uh, month or two because the French translation of his book, Everything, is out now. Um, and there's going to be a book launch here in Montreal at some point in the next, I guess, month or two. So when that happens, uh, we will have a live interview with Aaron Haspel uh, about the, the new book and about sort of more theoretically and generally the process of translation. And we're going to have the, uh, the guy who translated the book into French uh, on the podcast as well. So I'm very much looking forward to that. And we will include a link to the translation um, on our site. But uh, for now, uh, have a wonderful day, Aaron, and thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Very kind of you to have me, John, and I look forward to doing it again or until you're sick of me, which may already be. <laughs> oh, that, that, that is never going to happen. I, I can tell you're going to be, because uh, we, get, we get so much positive uh, response from you know, your, your episode. We've got so much feedback from, from that episode. No, our, our listeners love on the Aaron, so uh, you'll, you'll be a repeat offender for sure. <laughs> I'm delighted to hear it. All right. Thanks for Take having care. me again. Bye for now. Okay. Bye-bye.